This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Remote Patient Monitoring. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Telehealth has a long history with a lot of evolution over the years. During the American Civil War, Telegraph was used to transmit medical information such as casualty lists and medical supply lists. The first published case report of telehealth was in 1879 when a Lancet article described a physician diagnosing a child's ailment by phone in lieu of a home visit. By the early 1900s, technology advancements allowed for expansion of telehealth, and in 1905, Dutch physician Willem Eindhoven not only developed the first practical EKG, but also used telephone to transmit EKGs from his lab to the hospital. By 1920s, radio was used to do telehealth consultations to remote areas such as on small islands or ships. Come 1950s, we are now seeing a lot more fields getting into telehealth, such as teleradiology, telepsychiatry, and teleneurology. Even NASA had skin in the game. They invested a huge sum of money to develop remote monitoring to help determine if man could withstand spaceflight. In 2020, telehealth saw a huge boom with broad adoption with the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic and global lockdown. Now the COVID-19 national emergency is ending, but telehealth has remained and continues to expand. With that is the expansion of remote patient monitoring or remote physiologic monitoring, RPM. Modern technology is seeing newer, better sensors that are cheaper to manufacture and making remote monitoring of patients using medical devices even more accessible. But how can we leverage this technology to best care for our patients? 
To answer that question, I've invited two of Ohio State University's primary care innovation experts. I am pleased to introduce Associate Professor of Internal Medicine, Dr. Jody Grandominico. Jody serves as the Associate Director of Clinical Operations in the Division of General Internal Medicine and leads many clinical innovation programs for the division. I also have the pleasure of welcoming Associate Professor and Doctor of Pharmacy, Kelly Barnes. Kelly is the lead pharmacist for General Internal Medicine and created and leads the remote monitoring program along with many other pharmacy programs in primary care. Jody, Kelly, welcome to MedNet. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Um, <laughs> Jody, uh, what are the different things that we can monitor using RPM? Well, we're really excited to be here and share with you that we use remote physiologic monitoring currently to number a couple of different conditions in our primary care practices. Right now, we're using it for mostly hypertension and diabetes, but I think you'll see in the literature that remote physiologic monitoring is used um, in a number of other conditions, including obesity, um, congestive heart failure, and even during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was being used to monitor things like acute COVID-19 pneumonia, especially during hospital discharge. Perfect. That's wonderful to hear. And Kelly, how does the healthcare team, such as pharmacists, integrate with RPM uptake? Yeah, we're going to talk about that today. I think it's absolutely imperative that a care team is um, responsible for implementation of RPM so that we can um, help to support our providers and um, who already have busy schedules and, and busy templates. And so the care team can do a lot of things like monitoring adherence to, to remote patient monitoring um, and intervening to improve chronic disease control. Thank you. Before we dive into today's program, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can browse our entire catalog of 120 programs there. Or if you prefer to consume your CME by podcast, search for, your, for us on your preferred podcast app under mednet21 CME. If you have any questions about our program, please use the email icon on the bottom of the webcast player to send those to us. Now let's get started. Jody? Sure. So like I said, we're really excited to be here to share with you our experience with remote physiologic monitoring. We have nothing to disclose. And today, hoping to share with you um, to define remote physiologic monitoring and make a case for why using remote physiologic monitoring in your practices is a good idea, sharing you, with you how we went about implementing remote physiologic monitoring in our practices at Ohio State, um, telling you a little bit about what we've learned and some of the challenges that we've encountered. And then of course, um, sharing with you a little bit about the data behind just why remote physiologic monitoring is, can improve the, the care that you're delivering to your patients. So let's start with some definitions. What is remote physiologic monitoring? In 2018, CMS rolled out some codes um, to help with reimbursement for the use of remote physiologic monitoring. And remote physiologic monitoring is defined as the use of a medical device that is approved by the, the federal, um, by the FDA. It must be something that can digitally record and automatically upload physiologic patient data. And as with all CMS services, it must be medically necessary. And it is used to develop and manage a treatment plan for patients. Now, historically, this is something that should be used to kind of manage a chronic condition, but as we saw specifically during the COVID-19 pandemic, it can also be used to manage um, acute conditions. 
like COVID-19 pneumonia. And specifically, a lot of, um, a lot of conditions are being used um, like post-surgical conditions to, as patients are being discharged from the hospital to monitor post-surgical um, monitoring of like pain and things like that. So seeing an expansion of um, indications for remote physiologic monitoring. A couple of other concepts. Um, remote physiologic monitoring is typically used for physiologic parameters, but there are a number of codes um, that CMS is rolling out for therapeutic indications as well, remote therapeutic monitoring. We're not going to cover those today. Remote physiologic monitoring can be used synchronously or asynchronously. We use this in our practices in both manners. So our pharmacists can download this data and reach out to patients when they're not in front of us, but they also use it when the patient, um, when they're seeing the patient in real time. So they use it in both manners. The other thing that I think is important to notice is that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is something that we use to help diagnose, blood, diagnose high blood pressure, but that's a, a little bit of a different indication for, um, for helping to diagnose hypertension. And that's a little bit of a different indication um, for, for diagnosing hypertension and remote physiologic monitoring is more of a, an ongoing management plan to manage hypertension. So it's a little bit of a different situation. So when you're thinking about rolling out remote physiologic monitoring, I think there's a number of things to think about. And patient drivers, what do patients want in your practice is a really important thing to consider. And then there's financial drivers that you should be considering within your practice. So when you're thinking about patient drivers, what about the uptake of telehealth? This group, the advisory board, is something that I, I really turn to when I'm looking, about, looking to think about operations. The advisory board is um, an industry leader for advising telehealth or advising, advising healthcare um, industry kind of trends and payment and what patients are looking for when they're looking to their, their healthcare providers for thinking about ways that we deliver healthcare. And they did this really interesting survey of 7,000 patients during the, during the COVID-19 pandemic looking at telehealth uptake. And what they found was that across all the generations, there was an uptake in telehealth utilization. I think that's probably not surprising. I think everybody probably experienced that. Certainly within primary care, we did. And this was when they were looking at this survey, they were looking specifically at telephone visits, video visits, and electronic portal utilization. And I think, again, this is probably not surprising if you're a primary care physician. Interestingly, what they found is that across those generations, 25% of the survey respondents had tried multiple different modalities. But I thought was what was the most interesting thing was that the largest increase had been seen in the baby boomer generation. 
And when you're thinking about chronic health conditions, that's probably where we see the largest number of our chronic health conditions. So our baby boomer population is really kind of primed and ready to try these new modalities of treatment, um, treatment options for managing their chronic health conditions. So when you're thinking about patient drivers for trying something new, this generation of patients is really ready to try something kind of outside the box with managing their chronic health conditions. This group went on to posit that asynchronous care really should be part of your telehealth strategy. And when they went on to think about why, they said chronic care management should be a major reason why you should be thinking about, chronic, about asynchronous care as part of your telehealth program. And they specifically defined remote physiologic monitoring as part of that strategy. So hypertension, diabetes, CHF, and obesity really lend themselves to remote physiologic monitoring. They thought avoiding hospitalization and improved disease management were main reasons why you would want to think about remote physiologic monitoring as a reason that you would want to consider remote, remote physiologic monitoring for asynchronous care. They went so far as to say that this should help with staff shortages. I think that there's some nuance to that, and Kelly will talk a little bit about that as part of her talk. Um, but I think overall, the hope and the promise with remote physiologic monitoring is that this should expand your reach as a primary care physician to help improve the, um, the control of some of these chronic disease states and avoid hospitalization, thereby potentially decreasing the total cost of care for your patients and improving the quality of the care that you're delivering. And that kind of leads me to my next point, which is some of the financial considerations for your remote physiologic strategy as you're thinking about this. That's always got to be part of what you're thinking about with your operations. So Kelly will talk a little bit about that as we go forward from, with regard to the revenue generation that you're considering when you're thinking about your strategy. But part of what we think about, especially in today's day and age from a primary care perspective, is value-based contracting. And when we think about value-based contracting, there's kind of three main flavors that we consider. So there's shared savings and total cost of care. And so again, when I talk about disease state management or chronic disease management and improving that level of control, the hope would be that you're improving the chronic disease state, keeping people out of the hospital, which should, in theory, keep the total cost of care lower and improve your total cost of care. And then, again, if you're improving chronic disease state management, that should improve your quality metrics and improve your return on investment for pay for performance. So, in theory, this should improve your, va your value-based contracting in return uh, and improve the, the amount of money that you can gain from your value-based contracting perspective. So those are reasons that you could potentially consider implementing a, value or a financial strategy. You could consider implementing a remote monitoring strategy for your value-based contracting perspective. And it begs the question, is remote physiologic monitoring cost-effective? So I really like this article from Value Health that was done in 2022, which looked at 34 different studies 
um, and looked specifically at the economic evaluation of remote patient monitoring for chronic disease. And what they found was that in particular, especially for hypertension, that the answer is yes. For hypertension, remote physiologic monitoring, from a health systems perspective, remote physiologic monitoring is cost effective. And the reason being is because the thought is that the, the upfront cost and the investment in the devices used to, to perform remote physiologic monitoring for hypertension management is relatively low and that the return on investment for revenue generation is good and that the downstream effect for prevention of acute hospitalization and, and those kinds of things is relatively upside. So it is cost effective to institute a remote physiologic monitoring strategy for hypertension. The data on things like CHF and COPD is a little less robust, but the thought is that it is most likely cost effective to do so for those disease states. There's not good data right now on diabetes, so the jury's kind of out on that. But for now, it does appear that remote physiologic monitoring for hypertension is, is a good idea. So with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Kelly, and she's gonna tell you a little bit about how we went about implementing remote physiologic monitoring in our practices. Perfect, thank you, Jody. So, I'm gonna start out giving background on um, the RPM CPT codes and how you may be able to advocate for implementation of RPM and then spend the majority of the time talking about implementation. Oops. So um, in 2018, CMS released the RPM CPT codes and they're meant to reimburse for the team of people that you're going to need to provide RPM to your patients. And we're gonna talk briefly about each of these codes today. So the first code, the 99453, is a once per episode care of care code. And it's billed one time for the initial setup and patient education on the device that they're going to use for RPM. It's valued at about $15 to $30 for reimbursement. And that's meant to reimburse for the clinical staff time that it takes to get the patient set up. The next four codes, the 99454, 457, 458, and the 99091 are all codes that are billed once per calendar month for RPM. So the first one, the 99454, is meant to reimburse for the device supply and the transmission of the data back into the EHR for the clinician to review. It reimburses on average $66 per month, and there are several important things you need to know about the 99454. The first is the 99454 can only be billed if you receive at least 16 days of data back from the patient. CMS is considering other valuations of this code for differing amounts of data, but right now you do have to receive at least 16 days worth of data. Also with the 99454, it can only be billed once per month per patient. So even if you have a patient monitoring two types of data, say their blood pressure and their blood glucose, you can only bill the 99454 one time. And only one provider or one entity can bill remote monitoring per each month for a patient. So you wouldn't be able to have a primary care provider and a specialist both, being, both providing RPM for a patient within a given month. The next two codes, the 99457 and the 99458, are codes that are time-based and they're meant to reimburse for the treatment services provided as a part of RPM. And they reimburse for the clinical staff, physician, or other qualified healthcare practitioner time. The 99457 for the first 20 minutes spent on remote monitoring services and the 99458 for each additional 20 minutes. 
they reimburse about 40 to $80 per month. And I think it's important to realize that for RPM, there is requirement for two-way interactive communication. And so this is most commonly done by telephone or um, video call. And then the 99091 is billed again once per calendar month if the physician or qualified healthcare practitioner spends a minimum of 30 minutes collecting and interpreting the data as well. So again, this is just one cost puzzle piece of the cost puzzle for RPM. Um, I think D Jody's going to talk a lot about the outcomes and downstream effects associated with RPM, um, but this is a, a piece that you can use to kind of justify the, the team that you need for RPM. I also want to give a little bit of background on the current landscape of RPM in the U.S. And um, this research report was released by CLASS, it's a research entity in July of 2022, and it's what they call an insight-driven report. And basically what it's meant is to summarize the current trends and key considerations for emerging, emerging healthcare technology. And so they surveyed 74 different institutions, and what they found was 92% of those institutions had RPM in place or they had plans to purchase some sort of RPM solution. And then when they looked at those entities that had RPM in place with plans to expand, the large majority were large hospital systems. But I think it's important to point out that there were, were systems and, and clinics of all different shapes and sizes. And I think this supports that a lot of um, healthcare entities realize that we're going to have to figure out how to use RPM to help care for our patients when they're not sitting in our offices. And then other potential benefits I think you can use to advocate for RPM implementation are things like detecting clinical decompensation for intervention. So for instance, if you have a heart failure population and you're watching for weight gain, you can intervene before they end up in the hospital. Also, I've heard time and time again that RPM can be used to enhance your provider-patient relationship and improve the patient experience of care. I experience that a lot with my patients. They really enjoy the individualized attention they think they're receiving and that high-impact, high-touch uh, care that they're receiving. We see that it can facilitate ongoing connection with patients and hopefully lose less patients to follow up. We know that it can help patients learn how to self-manage so they can watch data, they can learn from the data and figure out how to change behaviors to improve their control. We know that um, it likely can be used to improve performance on quality metrics in our value-based contracts. And then we know that it can generate revenue that can sustain the care team we need to be successful in, these value -based, um, in this value-based world. So let's talk about the exciting part, which is actually RPM implementation. I think the first step to RPM implementation is really to think about who needs to be on your implementation team. Um, and so you have to think about who is going to take responsibility for the implementation of RPM and who's going to coordinate the stakeholders that are needed to be successful with RPM. Other things you're gonna to wanna to think about is who can champion successful change and spread successful change, and then who has the resources that you need for the upfront costs associated with RPM. And all of those people are gonna to need to be on your implementation team. So who are those people? A lot of times they're your care team members and your physicians, someone from IT or information security. You're likely going to have a practice manager or some type of administrator, a project manager, likely someone from your C-suite or your practice owner who has the resources that you need to get RPM off the ground. You may include a patient for feedback, um, and then ultimately your care team managers or leaders who are gonna help get their team on board for the RPM implementation. First step, once you have your care team or your implementation team, is to identify your purpose or need. And typically, this purpose or need can be identified by asking what do your patients need to live healthier, happier lives? 
A lot of times your clinicians right off the bat can probably tell you exactly the use cases they want to use RPM for. Um, so those would be obviously purposes that you're going to use. But I think to find your broad RPM strategy, you're gonna wanna solicit feedback from those frontline clinicians. You're gonna re wanna review your performance on quality metrics, and you're gonna wanna solicit feedback from your patients about their experience and their satisfaction with their care. And when you do those three things, you should be able to identify the broad strategy or purpose for your RPM implementation. The other thing you wanna think about when you're implementing RPM is aligning with your quintuple aims. So we obviously can see what, how RPM could be used to improve the health of our populations and improve patient experience of care and likely decrease total cost of care as well. But we have to be cognizant of things like health equity when we're implementing RPM and not increasing workforce or provider burnout. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about our implementation strategies. I think you wanna prioritize use cases that align with your strategic goals, and that's really important to try to avoid the draw toward flashy new technology that might not actually align with your needs. So that can be a, a deterrent from RPM if you kind of get sidetracked with, with flashy new um, areas that maybe aren't what are within your strategic plan. And then I can, I think it can be especially difficult for large organizations to prioritize where they want to start. And I think there has to be good collaboration, again, from those frontline clinicians with kind of the, the um, managers of your RPM implementation strategies to, again, ensure that you're using RPM in a way that's going to be really effective for your patients. Once you have your purpose, I think then you're going to identify what devices you want to use. And as we talked about before, for RPM, the requirement is that you use any medical device that is deemed a medical device by the FDA. So the most common devices you'll see are things like blood pressure monitors, blood glucose monitors, pulse oximeters, and scales. But almost weekly, there are new devices coming to the market. And I think we're going to see this um, device list really diversify in the coming years as well. When you're thinking about choosing your actual device, there are a lot of things to think about. And I would say first and foremost is clinical accuracy. So any successful RPM program is going to use the data that is received to make treatment decisions. That data has to be reliable and it has to be um, accurate. And so when you're picking a device, you're probably gonna pick a device that has been validated by the FDA or is on the US clinical um, device validation list. Another thing you're gonna to wanna to think about is how your device um, maintains HIPAA compliance. So you are going to be transmitting patient-specific data back into your EHR for review, and you wanna ensure that you're doing that in a way that is secure. You have to think about the ease of use of device. So I think you want your device to just feel like any other device they're using and not feel like technology. Um, in order for an RPM program to be successful, the patient has to use the device and you have to get that data back. And so it needs to be something that is pretty achievable and easy, easy to do. I think it's getting easier and easier to get devices at affordable costs um, that do allow for RPM. And so that's something you're gonna wanna think about when you're choosing your devices. and then. As you're scaling, you want to make sure that your vendor or the person, the manufacturer of your device is able to keep up with your demand. Um, so nothing can halt a program faster than not being able to get the device that you need to, to do RPM. And so you have to make sure your manufacturer can keep up with that demand. Um, switching devices can take a lot of time and a lot of effort and um, a drain on resources. And so you want to make sure that you're going to be able to scale in the way that you want to scale. 
So once you've identified your purpose or need, I think it's important to define success up front. Um, and the reason it's important to define, su define success up front is because it allows your team or all of the stakeholders to establish a common goal. It also brings objectivity to the measures that you're going to look at after you implement to ensure that you're achieving the goals that you've set. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about vendors or, or thinking about partnerships with vendors. And if you have your definition of success up front, you'll be able to easily determine if a vendor is the right fit for you. So when we talk about defining success, a lot of times you're talking about things like looking for specific improvements in clinical outcomes or quality and safety measures. You're thinking about utilization metrics. So are you decreasing ED utilization or, or hospital admissions? You might be thinking about access for care. Can you improve your access to your clinicians? Um, can you improve patient and caregiver experience or your clinician's experience? Or maybe even financial and operational impact. So are you able to keep patients loyal to your system? Are you able to bring new patients in? Um, so defining these upfront then helps you to measure success later within your implementation strategy. The next thing you're gonna think about is what is your strategy and what are some important integration factors? And I think the first question you're gonna ask yourself is, do you want a fully internal program for RPM? or do you wanna consider outsourcing pieces or parts or even your whole RPM program? I think to answer this question, you have to consider what internal resources you have and what your intended goals are. If you decide to outsource any part of your program, um, different parts you can consider are things like device deployment and education, the monitoring of the data that's coming back in, the use of software to identify critical values or even to help with the decision support on the data that you're receiving, patient interventions, and then device return. So sending that device in and, and sort of offboarding your patients. Those are areas where you'll see vendors get involved and, and can provide those sorts of services. If you decide you want to outsource a portion, you're likely gonna partner with a vendor. And I think it's important to realize that the vendor market is rapidly evolving and there is a lot of diverse options. And so there are a lot of things to consider. So you'll see with vendors, some are broad RPM solutions where they provide lots of different types of RPM and, and can monitor lots of different types of data while some are focused on specific types of data. And then some are even middleware solutions where they help apps talk to your EHR. Um, and so you have to think about, what, again, what is the right fit for your program? Some have fully vendored monitor, monitored data where they only escalate data that's at a certain critical value, while other, allow, other vendors allow you to keep the internal monitoring yourself. Some vendors provide a full ongoing IT support system while others don't, and some will give you very sophisticated reports on data, um, and others have less sophisticated opportunities. And so with this variability in the market, you see considerable variability in the pricing as well. Um, and you really kind of just have to think about what, what isn't gonna meet your needs in the most effective way. Other things to think about is how long has a vendor been around? Do they have any top um, uh, you know, uh, clients that you can talk to to get information from? You wanna think about their IT sophistication and how easily they're gonna integrate with your EHR, how quickly they can integrate with your EHR. And then once they do that, are you able to customize or is it kind of a one size fit all? And that might help you decide if, if a vendor is the right fit for you. You have to think about usability, ease of use for the patient, clinical validation, making sure you're getting accurate data, ensuring that there's HIPAA compliance and that they have some risk mitigation strategy if they do have some sort of HIPAA breach. You probably wanna pay attention to their customer service habits and, and how that's going to work for you as the customer and for your patients as the customer. 
you probably want to ask for a case uh, study or, or a referral to one of their other clients. And then you have to think about their ability to scale with you so it doesn't slow your program down. And that, again, is if you are going to partner with a vendor versus keeping kind of the entire operation internally. Other key strategy factors to think about with your integration um, or implementation of RPM is the type of IT integration that you're going to use. And the two most common types that you'll see are Bluetooth-enabled devices and cellularly-enabled devices. So we started at OSU with Bluetooth devices, and I think there's pros and cons to both types. So with a Bluetooth device, you typically are reliant on a Wi-Fi network, and you have to have the Bluetooth monitor transmit data back into some sort of smart device, like a smartphone or a tablet. The nice thing about this is the upfront costs are relatively low. It's really just the cost of the Bluetooth monitor. The downsides to Bluetooth monitors is that there are a lot of connection points. So for our Bluetooth blood pressure monitors, they feed back into an app on the patient's smartphone that feeds to an intermediary app that then feeds into OSU MyChart, which comes into the electronic health record. That's a lot of steps and a lot of opportunity for those two things to become unconnected. And so we don't have a streamlined flow of the data as we'd like to see. The other thing about Bluetooth devices is it relies on Wi-Fi access and it relies on the patient having some sort of smart device to receive the data. And when we think about health equity, that can be kind of a deterrent to ensuring that we can provide RPM for all of our patients. The other place you could transition to is cellularly enabled devices, which is what we are currently um, sort of transitioning to at this point. The nice thing about cellularly enabled devices is you don't have to have that smartphone or Wi-Fi access. It just transmits the data directly from the device back into your EHR. Um, and so that can decrease any sort of connectivity issues and improve the health equity. The downside to cellularly enabled devices is they typically are more costly and they typically have a per member per month charge for the cellular data that the institution may have to absorb. So you kind of have to pick again. I think Bluetooth is an easy way to get started and get your feet wet, but maybe the cellular devices would be better in the long term. You have to think about provider experience. I think it's absolutely imperative for RPM to be integrated with the home institution's health um, record. So the provider shouldn't need to go to a separate portal to place an order for RPM or to look at data because that's going to make your uptake low and that's going to increase provider burnout. And so um, integration with your EHR is absolutely imperative. I think you have to have a care team. Um, again, this can't just be something that we put onto our already busy providers with their already busy schedule templates. You have to use a care team to really manage these patients, and we'll talk a little bit about that more in detail. I think data visualization is very important. You want the data be, to be coming to your clinical team in a way that it's easily digestible, and you can quickly make decisions on the data so that you're maximizing the time that you're spending on patient care and really minimizing any time that you're looking at data or organizing data. And then I think you want to have a robust way to prioritize those patients that are deteriorating that you need to reach out to today compared to those who maybe you're going to reach out to in a week or two weeks again so that we're not spending time finding the patients, we're spending our time working with the patients. Once you've determined your strategy and some of these key integration factors, then it's time to actually create your workflow. And the first thing you have to do is ensure that you have a good functioning, high efficiency care team. Um, again, I think a care team is important to make sure that we're not increasing the provider burnout. Um, and that care team is probably going to be uh, have multiple different types of team members on it. So you can imagine that you might have 
some team members that are focused just on adherence to monitoring and can reach out to patients when they're not using their device. You might have care team members who are focused on actually intervening and improving, uh, making changes in, in treatment plans to improve chronic disease control. And then you might have care team members that are focused on re outreach and, and triaging patients when you have critical values. And so I think you wanna think about who those people need to be and have everyone sort of practicing at the top of their license to ensure that um, you have the most efficient model possible. In our practices, we use pharmacists that manage the chronic disease states with the data that we're receiving. So our pharmacists have collaborative practice agreements and they receive the data and they outreach to patients and they make adjustments in their medications to help better control their chronic disease. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, our pharmacists are really handling the data. And then they're collaborating with the physicians when they need to in complex situations or in, in critical type of situations. And so again, kind of spreading the work of RPM among the entire care team. When you think about, once you have your care team in place, what your workflow is gonna actually look, at, look like, you have to think about things like patient enrollment, patient engagement and management, and then some administrative tasks as well. So as far as patient enrollment goes, you're gonna wanna have specific target populations. So what are your exclusion and exclusion criteria? Who does it make sense to actually enroll in RPM? The next thing you're gonna do is you're gonna consent the patient. So CMS does require that you consent the patient to RPM so that they are aware that they could be um, responsible for any type of copay or co-insurance associated with RPM. We actually use this consent for that, and we also use it to help inform the patient how we want them or what we want them to kind of be responsible for within RPM. So how often do we want them to use their device? And if they get a critical value, how do we want them to react? And we, we build all of that into our consent process. The next thing we do once we consent of the patient is to educate them so that they understand how to use the device, but even maybe more importantly, how to get the best data possible. What is our optimal blood pressure monitoring technique? When do we want them to check their blood glucoses? Those sorts of things. And then we deploy the device. We get them set up, we connect the technology, and we have them go home with the device um, to use it to receive the data back. As far as patient engagement goes, we do um, look at patients and how often they're checking their their data and, and reach out if they aren't using their device and, and we, we need more data. Um, we have a team that's monitoring the data and then if we do receive a critical value, we have a, a team of triage nurses that can reach out to those patients and triage the situation and work with the provider to, to react to that critical value. Um, we have our pharmacists working to intervene when we receive the data to improve the chronic disease control. And then the other thing you have to think about is when do we discharge the patient? And so most commonly that happens when the patient's blood pressure or, or blood glucose gets controlled. The other thing that could happen is you might have a patient loss to follow up and you need to kind of define what that means and when you may discharge them from RPM. And then you have to think about the device return. So we use a mailing system where patients can mail the device back to the clinic so they don't have to come back and drop that off. And then there are some administrative tasks that you have, a, have to have a process for. So things like the billing, um, tracking of time and submitting of codes. And I think the more you can automate that, the better, because you again wanna maximize the time your care team is spending on the management of the disease and less on administrative tasks. And then you have to think about your device inventory and calibration and cleaning and those sorts of things as well. Once you have your workflow, it's time to pilot, and I always advocate for piloting on a small scale and then using a CQI process to improve your operations before kind of scaling at large. If you want to pilot, there are upfront costs, obviously, with device procurement, and so you might want to use several different types of strategies to, to deal with those upfront costs. So 
One is, is I would encourage you to model what you can generate with the RPM CPT codes, because I do think long-term these CPT codes make RPM sustainable. Um, and so you'd be able to kind of show that by modeling what you might be able to use to sustain the care team you need for RPM. Also thinking about downstream effects, are you able to decrease utilization in the ED? Are you able to decrease hospital emissions? Are you able to decrease um, some of the poor outcomes that we may see patients have that contribute to total cost of care? And then one of the easiest ways I would say to get started is to use a grant to, to purchase your devices. Um, you know, it's not gonna sustain your program long-term, but it will help you get started. And then you can use those RPM CPT codes to sustain the program and the care team that you need. Once you've piloted, you're gonna measure your success and you're gonna use some of those um, uh, measures that we talked about before. So measures with health outcomes, like uh, you know, improved health outcomes, improved quality of life, things like experience of care for the patient, so patient satisfaction in their access to care, looking at reduced costs and decreased utilization, and then overall provider satisfaction as well. And this will help you to inform where you might need to improve your process before you scale um, to your large, your large program. So again, I can't emphasize enough using continuous quality improvement and just making small scale changes to make your program more efficient over time. We've learned a number of lessons that have informed our continuous quality improvement, um, and I've kind of organized those into um, patient experience lessons learned and provider experience lessons learned. One of the very early lessons we learned is that the monitor has to be easy for the patient to use. In order for them to actually use it at home, they have to be able to use it just like any other monitor. So we get all of the technology stuff set up before they leave the office and then they really just have to interact with it like they would a normal blood pressure monitor when they get home. We've learned that password recall can be time consuming. So with our Bluetooth monitors, there are a lot of connectivities and a lot of different apps that have to be used and patients have to re remember a lot of different passwords and that can really slow down the process. With our Bluetooth devices, we've learned a lot about um, the fact that seamless connectivity is really important. And so again, that's kind of why we are transitioning to cellularly enabled devices. We also have started when we get a patient set up with RPM to schedule them for their first telephone visit and, and actually the ongoing telephone visits as well, because we find that if a patient is scheduled for their first interaction with the RPM team, then they're ready to receive the, the recommendations that you have. They're ready to talk about treatment changes. And so that can be more effective versus our cold calls where we may not reach the patient at a good time or we may not reach them at all. And then I think you really have to think about the who it is that you implement or you enroll into RPM. Patient engagement is definitely a key for success. They have to be willing to use the device. They have to be willing to talk to the team about changes to make. And otherwise, RPM is not going to be effective and it's probably sort of a waste of resources. And then as far as our provider experience goes, I think I've said this already, integration with the electronic health record is absolutely imperative. Um, it, it can't be a separate portal. It can't be a separate order. It needs to just function like we see all of our other orders function and function like we see our other lab values and vitals coming back into the chart, just in an easy way that kind of fits into the already uh, practice, practice model that you have. Um, I think the data needs to be easily digestible and set up in a way where you can quickly identify trends and make treatment decisions. I think we need to have a sophisticated way to prioritize patients and so we're not monitoring, you know, reviewing every patient every minute, but instead we have an easy way to identify those patients that need outreach. And then I think you have to automate the billing. Um, so we have ours automated where the clinicians just have to enter their time into a discrete field and then all of the billing kind of happens in the background. 
And so if you're able to kind of improve your process and, and, and use a continuous quality improvement process, I think you can really uh, set up a very efficient and effective model. And we're seeing that. We're seeing growth in those models. So um, trends in remote patient monitoring between February of 2020 and September of 2021, we saw a five-fold increase in the RPM claims for Medicare beneficiaries. The large majority, 72% of those claims were coming out of primary care, but we're also starting to see other specialties use RPM as well, people like cardiology and pulmonology and others. And the large majority are experienced with RPM right now is with hypertension. Um, but again, I think that we're going to see diversity in the way that RPM is used pretty change a lot over the next three to five years. And so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jody to talk about some of the early um, outcomes and, and benefits we're seeing with RPM. Thank you, Kelly. So yeah, so we talked about how we implement, we talked about patient drivers of uptake of telehealth, and we talked about financial and quality incentives, but does RPM actually help you take better care of patients? So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I really like this position statement from the American Heart Association and the Journal of Hypertension on the use of telemedicine for the management of arterial hypertension. I'm a general internist, I'm a primary care physician, and so I'm gonna focus a little bit on what they said from a primary care perspective on the use of telemedicine and the management of hypertension. They looked at five different studies on implementation of telemedicine and management of hypertension. And basically what the finding was in these five different studies looking at a number of different practices, somewhere between 200 and 1,000 patients studied over six to 12 months. They, um, a number of different interventions, a little bit different, difficult to kind of go through all the details here, but. Um, self-monitoring with or without telemedicine. And basically the takeaway was, yes, um, the use of telemedicine, telemonitoring with hypertension was definitely a good thing. They found quicker control with hypertension, more adherence with blood pressure medications, and um, um, less, um, more patient satisfaction with, um, with, their, with their management plans. And I think the really, really important thing, as Kelly alluded to, is it's super, super important to have an engaged care team involved with these patients. And I can't stress that enough. Um, we see that in our day-to-day -day practice. It would be remiss of me, as I'm presenting with my friendly neighborhood pharmacist, um, to not mention that um, they also looked at this, the data on use of a pharmacist with management of uncomplicated hypertensive patients. And what they found was that pharmacist-led intervention led to a quicker control of blood pressure at a lower cost. And I think in this day and age, we can't stress that enough. Access to primary care is difficult. And if you can have a pharmacist help you with hypertension management, this improves access to primary care and that is just so important. This allows the um, opportunity for doctors to take care of more complex patients. And they saw this in the studies that have been done with looking at pharmacist-led um, initiatives to control hypertension. So I'll make a plug. If you, can, if you can use your pharmacist to help you manage hypertensive patients, you should do so. What about diabetes? Well, I think the data is really robust for type 1 diabetics. When I'm talking about remote physiologic monitoring for type 1 diabetics, I'm talking about continuous glucose monitoring. Um, it's clear that for type 1 diabetics, continuous glucose monitoring leads to less hypoglycemic events, more time in range, and um, 
improved A1C control. For type 2 diabetics, the data's been a little bit less clear, but I think we're seeing emerging evidence here as well. Um, this study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2017 looked at complicated type 2 diabetics that were poorly controlled and on multiple daily insulin injections. And what they did was they took 158 patients and randomized them to continuous glucose monitoring versus regular blood glucose monitoring, so just daily finger sticks, and followed them for 24 weeks with the primary outcome of hemoglobin A1C measurement. And what they found was that there was a statistically significant decrease in hemoglobin A1C with higher frequency of use, meaning that the continuous glucose monitoring group was more likely to check their blood sugar, actually a lot more likely to check their blood sugar, lo and behold, um, and increased time and range and much improved patient satisfaction in the continuous glucose monitoring use. And I don't think that's probably a surprise to anybody in the primary care setting. I know my patients who are using continuous glucose monitoring like it a heck of a lot better than they do um, checking their feet their finger sticks. Um, this article from JAMA, I think this one was done in, I believe, 2022, if I'm not mistaken, 2021, um, was a similar article. This one, they were actually looking at poorly controlled diabetics. I think the baseline here was a hemoglobin A1C of nine. Um, these patients actually were just using basal insulin alone along with oral hypoglycemic agents. And similar kind of results here, 175 patients randomized two to one to continuous glucose monitoring versus finger stick blood sugar me measurements. They followed these patients for eight months with the primary outcome of hemoglobin A1C. And again, similar results here, improved um, A1C measurements in the continuous glucose monitoring group. Not a huge difference, but still statistically significant improve time and range again and improve patient satisfaction. So I think we're seeing emerging evidence that your poorly controlled type two diabetics using insulin, there's con there is significant data coming out that they do better with continuous glucose monitoring. So emerging evidence here to support the use of RPM for your type two diabetics. And finally, we talked a little bit earlier with the hope and promise that use of this technology will hopefully help prevent acute care utilization and in turn reduce costs. So what does the data say about that? This British Medical Journal article looking at just that question, does remote patient monitoring reduce acute care utilization? This systematic review looked at 91 studies. Most of them were looking at cardiovascular disease and COPD. These were high quality randomized controlled trials or cohort studies. Now, only 50% of them actually reported on acute care utilization, um, and that was across multiple mod modalities, ER utilization or hospitalization. 50% of those, 50, of the 50% reporting on that outcome, 50% of them reported reduction in acute care utilization. I thought the thing that was most interesting was that RPM for COPD appears to be actually pretty effective at preventing ER visits. And I think one of the worries when you're having patients monitor these parameters is that they may get nervous and actually increase ER, ER visits. That was not found. So I think that's a really important point. And again here, um, two things to note. Sicker populations seem to derive the most benefits, in particular for the, um, the cardiovascular disease group and the COPD group. One thing to note was that these patients had implantable cardiac devices, so that's really important to note for the cardiovascular disease group. 
those those patients are obviously going to be a little bit more expensive up front um, because of those implantable devices. But I think one of the things that was really a take home here in this study was that, again, what you see over and over again is that you have engaged support teams. And Kelly mentioned that in her part of the talk. And it was mentioned again in the hypertension um, hypertension paper. So having those engaged support teams are super, super important to the success of these programs. And I can't stress it enough. I see it day to day in my clinical practice. So with regard to wrap up, um, RPM can be used to engage patients um, outside of the clinic. And I think that is very, very important. As a primary care doctor, there's just not enough of us. So we have to find ways to expand our reach. And this is one way to do so. As Kelly talked about, the RPM market is really rapidly evolving, and we're going to see a lot of diverse options for managing these chronic conditions and even some acute conditions going forward. Organizational goals and resources are going to dictate what the best option is at your home institution. Patient, provider, and care team experience is really going to dictate the uptake and impact. So as you implement, pilot, and really work out the kinks before you expand um, wherever you are. Um, financial sustainability should account for all aspects of reimbursement, and health and cost outcomes will be really integral to evaluating the global impact of what is going on. And I think with that, we are pretty much wrapped up. Wow, thank you guys so much. Um, it was such a pleasure to hear your talk, and um, I thought you did a great job of going through uh, so many different aspects of RPM, uh, you know, the use case, um, the data behind it, and how to actually implement it in your practice. So that was extremely helpful. Now, Jody, I'm curious, do patients have to use the clinic supplied devices or can they use their own devices? You know, a lot of my hypertensive patients already have a blood pressure cuff. Yeah, um, I think it's probably best if they use the one that we supply because those have often been vetted by our compliance department. And as you're considering rolling out your own program, it's probably best if you work with your compliance department and be sure that the FDA approved device that you're using has been vetted by your compliance department. I don't think that's a must. Certainly the devices that patients have um, are probably okay to use for transmittal, but then always checking with your compliance department to be sure from a billing perspective that's kosher is a good mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. So is it difficult to, um, I mean, I guess also, it, does it make sense to ask someone who already has a cuff or already has a device to then not use the device that they already have and use your clinic supplied one? Yeah, it gets a little bit tricky. And the other thing I think that's hard is just the connectivity mm -hmm. piece of mm -hmm. it. Because, that's a good point. Yeah, because mm -hmm. sometimes that does get to be a little bit challenging. Um, we find that that is sometimes a really big problem is just the connectivity part of it, mm -hmm. that like what they have at home doesn't always jive with our electronic health record. Mm -hmm. That's sometimes an issue. And do you often run into the problem of patients not returning the device? Especially, I, you know, you I, mentioned, uh, Kelly mentioned that, yeah. you know, you're, you're wanting to look at cellular enabled, more expensive devices. So I imagine if someone doesn't return one of those, yeah. that would be very costly that to is the a, program. That is a problem. Um, I don't, no, I I don't, that may be a better question for Kelly, actually. I don't know. <laughs> I've not found that. Usually people are pretty good about returning what we've, and I, and I will credit the pharmacy team a lot with this because they do such a wonderful job with setting up expectations up front. They are mm -hmm. very transparent about what patients can expect and what exactly is expected on their end with regard to, you know, 
if there's any cost sharing, you know, what exactly they're doing with the devices, when we expect them back, et cetera, et cetera. So patients know exactly, mm -hmm. you know, and they make it very easy to return the devices as well. Perfect. Now, Kelly, um, if the goal is self-management and stabilization, then I imagine the RPM is just a time-limited episode, right? How long does it usually last for? Yeah, good question. So we typically are using RPM to get them to a goal, so to get their chronic disease controlled. What we're seeing on average with blood pressure is that our patients are enrolled for about 130 days, but I think there's a lot of variability in that. I think it really depends on where they start, how high is their blood pressure, how complex is their case, um, and so we'll see some patients enrolled for a month or two if they're closer to goal, and we may see patients um, enrolled for up to a year if it takes multiple medication changes. And so I think it's variable, but on average, we're seeing about a four-month enrollment period. Perfect. Okay. And then, you know, same question, are patients returning their devices? Yeah, good question. So I do think it really depends on um, the patient's barriers to getting, you know, the device back into you. So you want to make it as easy as possible to get the device back to you. The other thing I'll tell you is when you look at the CPT codes for RPM, um, if you have a patient enrolled for several months, you almost could cover the cost of that device if you don't get it back and still mm -hmm. be a sustainable service. So mm -hmm. we try to get the devices back, obviously just from a um, you know perspective of they can be used multiple times and things mm -hmm. like that. But I um, you know we if we don't get it back, it's not completely detrimental to the program. The other thing I will tell you is um, with patient specific devices, we usually kind of um, decide what to do based on the case of the patient. So if a patient has their own device, we know the device is accurate, and we don't think the patient needs the um, the the convenience of the pa of the data coming back to us mm -hmm. in real time. Then maybe we just have them use their device at home, and we just manage them with their patient reported blood pressure readings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then patients who don't have devices or really do like the convenience of it coming back into us, or want the like the the on-demand monitoring so that we see those critical values, mm -hmm. then that's might might be where we go more of an RPM type of direction. Okay, perfect, because that was one of my questions, actually. Yeah. And then last question is about cost. Now, Jody, the RPM codes, um, are they typically covered by insurance? Is there cost sharing to the patients, or are you seeing a lot of, um, like, insurance is not quite on board with the codes yet? No, insurance is covering RPM mm -hmm. across the board. What we always tell patients is that there could be some out-of-pocket cost sharing. We have not had any complaints from patients about cost sharing. And again, I will credit the pharmacy team up front with explaining that to patients. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the patients really do, like Kelly was saying, they really like this added attention and this feeling like they're getting this additional service and mm -hmm. this extra care and getting their blood pressure under control. So a lot of times they really, if there is an added cost, they, they really don't seem to mind mm -hmm. this little bit of extra cost to get better, better health care and they feel like they're getting, they're getting their chronic conditions managed much mm -hmm. better. So if there is a little bit of additional cost, they don't seem to complain about it. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much. We're going to wrap up with a final key point from each presenter. Jody. Um, I will say that I think, again, with the state of primary care and there just not being enough of us, I think the importance of finding ways to manage patients and take better care of their chronic health conditions with a team of people, this is just another tool in the toolbox and it's really improved the quality of my day-to-day, -day, so I really like it. And Kelly? 
I would say um, the biggest thing I can't stress enough is that with the change in how we're providing healthcare, there's more emphasis on providing care outside of the office and meeting the patient where they are in their community. And I think RPM can be a very effective way to do that and may help us get chronic disease controlled faster than what we have traditionally seen with our typical every three to six month follow-up visits. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit and ABIM MOC for watching by logging onto our website and taking our post-test. Join us again next week to kick off National Osteoporosis Awareness Month with a program on osteoporosis with my guests, Dr. Stephen Ng and Laura Ryan. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.